morning again, Chili Bible. It always is a blessing to be amongst God's people, and it's good to be with you this morning. We have the manifold blessing of both being God's people and having his word revealed to us through the apostles and prophets and written down in a book where anyone who can read can study it and understand what it says. And I've been mentioning now for the last couple of weeks uh, that we are having in uh, Pastor Brad Reardon from the Pastors Training Network uh, with the EFCA. He's going to be here on the 11th and 12th of April uh, doing a class for us through the book of Jonah. And if you have ever wanted to have the confidence as you stand in front of other people or as you lead a small group that you know what the scripture says and what it means, and you know how you know what the scripture says and what it means. Uh, If you want to be encouraged and motivated to carry God's message to people who will die without him, if you want to uh, receive some encouragement and some training in the study of the word of God, then this class is for you. It's for men's ministry leaders and women's ministry leaders, uh, for elders, for deacons, and simply people who are hungry to know God and to understand his word in a deeper way. So uh, this class is going to be from 7 to 10 on Friday the 11th, and uh, that's p.m., by the way, uh, and from 8.30 a.m. to 5 o'clock p.m. on Saturday. And if you talk to Kenton Bergman or you talk to uh, Spencer Smith, they can tell you one of the best things you'll ever do in terms of studying God's Word. Uh, This class will be uh, fantastic for you. So there are six spots left, and I'd encourage you to sign up and join us. And with that, I want to plunge into God's Word here today. Before that, we, uh, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to be with us and guide us and teach us as we study. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your wonderful grace to us. Thank you supremely, Father, for Jesus Christ, who, though he was God, humbled himself and became man. Though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become exceedingly Father, we thank you for the rich blessings we have in Jesus Christ and our salvation in him. We thank you for your word, which tells us not only the way to be saved and redeemed from sin and death and hell, but also tells us how to walk day by day in relationship with you, filled with the spirit you promised to give us. And Father, we pray that your spirit would fill us with the knowledge of the word here today. pray in Jesus. Well, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10 says this, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into the back of a fool. Biblically speaking, a fool is not simply an ignorant person. A fool is a man or a woman who refuses to repent no matter how high the cost goes. 
no matter how many opportunities he or she is given, they never change their mind. They never turn around. They never repent and obey God. And so it's not just ignorance. It's morally culpable rebellion. And that kind of rebellion always brings destruction and death in its wake. Uh, two verses later, Proverbs 17, 12 says this, Better to meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs than a fool and his, in his folly. And that is true. Okay? In other words, if you've ever been out west and you've seen some of these bears, if you ever see a mama bear, she has a couple of cubs, don't get near her. She will tear your face off and eat it. It will be bad. Okay, This is not a good idea. But far better that, the scripture says, than that you run into a man or a woman who is a fool in the midst of their folly because they bring the same kind of destruction and death, actually worse. And if there is a person in the Bible who defines the word fool, will not repent, no matter how high the cost goes, it is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, during the Exodus. So, uh, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to show you more of Pharaoh's foolishness here this week uh, in Exodus chapter 9. We're going to look at three plagues. Uh, no matter how many plagues there are, no matter how bad it gets, Pharaoh never repents. And in contrast to Pharaoh, we want to be people of wisdom who receive and obey God's word. And we want to, therefore, be the recipients of God's mercy rather than his, just, than his judgment. And mercy is ours when we believe and obey God's word. So let's dive in here and look at these plagues. Uh, beginning with the fifth one, the plague on the livestock, uh, Exodus chapter 9, beginning verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. The next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. Now to this point in the contest between Pharaoh, who is believed to be and worshipped as and may believe himself to be God, and the, the true God, the living God, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, you would think that after this many plagues have descended, exactly according to the word of the Lord through Moses, and they have, they have left exactly according to the word of the Lord through Moses. At this point, you ought to, he ought to be thinking that there are two important rules for life, that there is a God 
and I ain't it. <laughs> All right? But he's a little bit of a slow learner. He is still hanging on to this sinful idea that somehow he can do what he wants with God's people, and he can't. And up to this point, the plagues have been irritating, uncomfortable, uh, severely annoying, fairly nasty. But they haven't been devastating. Not yet. And here, this one is going to hit the Egyptian economy hard. The Egyptians were well known in the ancient world as, as, uh, as farmers of raised livestock, and they had horses that were world famous, as well as cattle and sheep and so forth. And up to this point, they haven't been hit. But now, with this, with this, the fifth plague, they're going to get hit. It's not going to be a short-term plague. You know, the, the Nile ran with blood for seven days, and the stink of dead fish and dead frogs uh, might still be lingering, hanging around like a you know, bad aroma on everything. But even, even the frogs and the fish eventually rot and go away. And the gnats and the other bugs, well, there's a life cycle on those, and eventually they go away also. But this one is going to be devastating because birds, when they're gone, take a long time. Now, a couple other things I want you to notice here and uh, understand in the text. First of all, uh, ancient Egyptian texts often refer to the Pharaoh, and they talk about the strong hand of Pharaoh accomplishing all these things. And and so when they went into battle and they won, well, the strong hand of Pharaoh was with his army, and therefore they won. Or, well, the crops came in good this year, and so the strong hand of Pharaoh was supporting us as a people. And here, look what God says he's going to do. He says, unless you release my people to worship me, my hand is going to fall on you. Remember what the, the, the magician said about the plague of gnats? They said, this is the what? The finger of God. God says, my hand is about to come down on you. Not just my finger. I'm going to get you where it hurts. With their livestock is where it hurts. Uh, and the plague does come because Pharaoh thinks that he can somehow stand against Yahweh, God of Israel. And when the plague comes, by the way, it wipes out the majority of the livestock, the majority of their cattle, their horses, their flocks, their donkeys, and their camels. When you see the word all there, you need to understand that doesn't mean every last one. Because verse 3, text, verse 3 says, will fall upon your livestock that are in the field. Not every one that they have. Because what's going on is, is this. Uh, the, the, the Nile River is at flood stage and it's receding. And as it recedes, grass comes up on these floodplains. But they've got their shelters and their farms back away from where the water floods. Who wants to walk around in the water for weeks? Right, Judy? Right, right John? 
<laughs> right? No one wants to do that. So you keep your stuff back away from the water, right? And, um, and so as the flood water recedes, though, they start letting livestock out into the field. And so it's just those livestock that are out grazing, not the ones they've kept in the shelter. They're going to get hit later. But just the ones they've got out grazing are hit, and every one of those does die where they Uh, let's see here. Um, this would be like somebody somebody who says, well, I lost all my money when the market crashed. Now, they may not have lost every single dollar, including the money in the jar, car washes and so forth, but they lost a huge amount in comparison to what they have left. And that's what happens with the Egyptians. They've lost a huge amount of their flocks. And by comparison of what they have left, they have nothing. And also you need to know that these animals are intimately wrapped up in Egyptian worship. And as we've seen, part of the point of all of these plagues is as a rebuke against all of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. And all of their whole system of worship is meant to be shown to be foolish and powerless to do anything when it really counts compared to the power of the living God. And so the Egyptians had a number of gods that they worshipped that were associated with livestock. They had, for example, Hathor, who was a goddess of uh, female fertility, and um, she, has, uh, the, she has the body of a woman, very beautiful, and the head of a cow. I don't know where we went sideways on that, uh, but in any case, she has the head of a cow, okay? I don't know if when you call a woman a cow, if you're being totally insulting in ancient Egypt or what. But uh, in any case, that's what they worshipped. That's what they worshipped. And they also had another god, a god named Apis. And every often they would find, they would go through the whole land of Egypt, and they would find one perfect dark white bull. And they would say, this is the incarnation of the god Apis. They would lead him off and they'd feed him special food, you know, and they'd keep him in a little sacred enclosure and they'd dress him up and put, put garlands around him and so forth. And he was the god of male fertility. He's this bull, sacred bull, all right? And when the thing died, this is what's really crazy, with the sacred bull... When the thing died, they would mummify it and bury it. And if you go to Memphis, the ruins of that ancient city of Memphis in Egypt today, you can see the tombs for the various Apis bulls that they had. And they have little niches in these tombs where they had the bodies of the dead bull. Now, think about that for just a second, okay? That is a little strange, all right? It's a little strange, uh, but And so what you've got is these gods of, of love and beauty and motherhood and feminine fertility on the one hand, and you've got masculinity and masculine fertility on the other that's worshipped in the form of these animals. And then all of a sudden, about 80-90% of the herd drops over dead, <laughs> all on one day. 
So it's not just economic loss, it's a religious rebuke. It's a religious crisis that is meant to be provoked by the living God. And Egyptians loved their sacred cows, and they loved having wealth and livestock, but God put them to death so that they would know that he is the Lord, and who is truly the God to be. Another plague falls, the sixth plague, and because it's the third in the cycle, there's no warning. And the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now the plagues are moving at this point from the natural realm over to people, and they're beginning to affect the Egyptians themselves directly uh, and look how the and notice how the I want you to see this because this is important this little detail about how the plague came about what the Egyptian magicians would do is they would take they would take ashes and soot and they would throw them onto things as a way of blessing whatever that thing was but what comes on Egypt with Moses and Aaron's ashes and and on top of that where does he get the soot from from the kiln what's the kiln it's where you fire the bricks remember what the israelites job is make bricks so god tells moses you go take some of the soot from the thing that is the emblem of your slavery and you throw it in the air when it does, it's going to plague all of the Egyptians. Oh, you think that ashes are a blessing? Guess what? I'm going to take ashes from what you have used to enslave my people. It'll become a curse to you throughout your whole life. And notice, too, when you see this, this is, this is kind of exciting. Because all along the way, you know, the Egyptian magicians have been trotted out to try and do their thing and say their little mumbo-jumbo and, and, and produce some, something like, Moses and Aaron have been able to do through the power of God. And they're able to reproduce things. They're able to make snakes out of their stick. They're able to turn water into blood. They're able to also make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. But, of course, they get more frogs, not less. And then, and then, and then they're not able to do any of the other plagues, but this one hits them. It hits them. And these guys are shown to be totally useless. Because not only can they not do anything about it, they're affected by it to a point that they've got boils from the top. Have you ever had a boil, by the way? Ever get one of those? I had a really bad staph infection at one point as a kid. I had, a, I had several. Bad. Painful. Ouch. Right? Uh, and you are so grateful for the modern advent of penicillin. You can treat these things and get rid of this, right? 
But they didn't have that. And so what, what they had was these giant boils, and then when they bust open, you've got sores all over your body. And imagine you've got them from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. You're walking around with separating, oozing wounds and boils. And the thing is about this is that these Egyptian magicians, they had to be perfectly clean and physically healthy to be able to do all their religious stuff. They had to shave all the hair off of their entire bodies. They had to be perfectly uh, clean in every aspect. And now they're afflicted with these sores and boils. And so not only can they not stand in front of Moses to do anything, literally cannot stand, but they're not able to do any of their religious stuff either. And so God is clamping off Egyptian religion by afflicting the priests and all the people of Egypt as well. And God continues to make a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. Notice it says, but the plague fell on who? All of the Egyptians. Not on the people of Israel. On all of the Egyptians. There's another plague that comes. This one comes with a warning. It's the beginning of a new cycle. It comes with a warning. Starts in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as there had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. 
The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you will stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. Thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and hail ceased, and rain no longer poured upon the earth. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Well, there's a lot in this section of the chapter. Uh, This plague is the beginning of the third of three cycles of plagues uh, before the last one. And to this point, God has shown himself sovereign over land, over water, over animals, and over disease. And unless Pharaoh repents, he's about to find out that God is also sovereign over the air and the storm. That he is God, and all the Egyptian gods related to this are powerless to do anything about it. Uh, Not Seth. The storm god, not Nut, the sky goddess. None of the gods of Egypt will be able to do anything about it. And and by the way, no big surprise, what does Pharaoh do? He doesn't repent. He goes, bring it on, big boy. And they bring it, they do. They pray to God, and God sends the hail. And, And look at what the text says here. I want you to see this. Verses 14 to 17. Look at what the text says. I will bring my plagues on you yourselves so that you will know there's none like me in all the earth. And in verse 16, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God is saying to Pharaoh that he has got him in this place as Pharaoh specifically so that he can demonstrate his power. So that he can demonstrate it to Pharaoh and to Israel and to all the earth. He says, I want my name to be proclaimed in all of the earth. And that is what happens, by the way. Uh, as the Israelites get out of Egypt, as they will here later in the chapter, and they meet some of these other peoples, uh, they hear about what God did. And when they go into the land of, of Israel, the land that God promised, when they go in under Joshua, some 40 years later, people are still talking about what God did to Pharaoh in Egypt. And he's and and Rahab tells the tells the spies, uh, all the people here in Jericho are in, afraid of you because they heard about what God did in Egypt. 
But I am a worshiper of the true God. So when you guys come in, deal gently with me and my family. I watched over you and protected you while you were here. And hundreds of years later, the Philistines see the ark of God come into the camp of Israel, and they're afraid because they remember, they have heard what God did to Egypt during the plague. And today, we are still talking about what God did to Egypt during the plagues. Why? Because God raised up Pharaoh specifically that he might demonstrate his power and to show his might and his name might be great in all of the no God has ever done the kinds of things that our God has done. And by the way, notice that the God of power is also a God of grace. He tells him, look, I'm going to tell you in advance, Pharaoh, what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you when it's going to happen. So that you can prepare for the day that is going to happen, which is tomorrow, about this time. And I want you to bring in all the livestock you have left and all of the, anybody you have working in the field. Bring them in too, because if you don't, they will die. Does God have to give him that kind of a warning? No. Has Pharaoh done anything to this point which merits a warning? No. And yet God is gracious and says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, Pharaoh, unless you repent. What's happening tomorrow morning? Well, some of Pharaoh's servants get the idea. They are listening in on this conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. And as soon as they can discreetly slide out the back, they go get what's left of their cows and donkeys and sheep, and, and they get them into the barn. The guy said, the storm is coming. I'm going to take care of me and mine, right? And they get it. They get in. Uh, but whatever is left out there dies in the field, including the crops that are about ready to be harvested. And by the way, that's something else. There was a God of the crops that was being worshipped right about this time. The Egyptians had a festival to the God of crops. His name escapes me at this point. It's not really relevant. But... They had a festival about this time of year to the God of crops. God says, oh, you think the God of crops is a big deal? Watch this. Uh, that's the God of the earth. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's right. Geb, uh, he's the God of crops. And all uh, half the crops are struck down. Half the crops are struck down. This is also the first time that Pharaoh admits to having sinned, right? This may be the first time in this guy's entire life he's ever admitted to sin because if you were the God king, you were you know, held to be immune from all that. And But look what he says. He goes, this time I've sinned. Like everything else up to now has been fine, but he's minimizing kind of what he's done. But he, he admits to sin. But, and, and Moses says, you know what, 
I don't think you really understand. I don't think you really believe. But, nevertheless, you don't really fear the Lord, but I will pray to God for relief. Now, at this point, we've looked at seven plagues, and I want to give you seven biblical truths from seven plagues. Now, these are not totally unique to just these three. Uh, In fact, as you'll see, uh, a lot of these same truths are repeated over and over and over all the way through the whole plague narrative. God is teaching the same thing, but I want to be sure we don't miss the obvious because sometimes the obvious is still really important so here we are uh one through seven number one that salvation equals freedom what does god demand of pharaoh let my people go let them go let them be free the book is called Exodus because it's all about getting out of slavery. And it's a true historical story that depicts in, phys- in a physical way what is true for us in a spiritual sense. That God, when he brings salvation, sets us free. He sets the Israelites free from physical slavery to a physical overlord, Pharaoh. But when he sets us free, when he saves us, he sets us free from slavery to sin, from the penalty of death, and from the dominance over our lives of Satan, our spiritual Pharaoh. And he also sets us free from eternal death, the ultimate penalty of sin. And this, these plagues are meant to teach us that salvation means freedom from all of that means release, means getting out, and that, and that God has bought our freedom with the blood of the Lamb. We're going to get there in a couple weeks, right at Easter. We're going to look at that. Yes, that was part of the plan. All right. Uh, um, number two, God saves for service. God saves for service. God doesn't just save Israel and also uh, save us simply because he is a good God, although he is that. He saves us for a purpose, and the purpose is worship. Let my people go that, there's purpose, they may worship me, that they may serve me. How does Israel serve the Lord? In worship, with their whole lives. How do we serve the Lord? in worship with our whole lives. By the way, do you not know this? I hope you do. That what we do here on Sunday morning is corporate worship. What you do out there is individual worship. Your life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is dedicated to, devoted to, bound to, worshiping and serving Christ with your life. God has saved us, he has bought us, he has redeemed us out of slavery to sin and death and hell and to to our overlord Satan. He has bought us for that in order that we might serve him and with worship, with our life, just like he did them. 
Number three, idolatry is foolish. Whenever someone takes a good thing and makes it an ultimate thing, there is an idol. Whenever you take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing, there is an idol. Worshippers of, of Apis and Hathor put money, beauty, and sex center stage. They said, this is how you define life, by these things. By beauty, by economic power, by sexuality. This is what a meaningful life looks like. Is there anything wrong with those things? Not necessarily. God is the maker of money, the, God, the maker of beauty, the creator of sex. But we don't, even though we don't bow down to, to you know, bull gods or you know, have funerals for a dead bull uh, or you know, worship women that have cow heads or that kind of thing, anymore we don't do that right that would be stupid and everybody laughed when i talked about burying the apis bull because it's ridiculous but at the same time in our lives we are very much prone very much prone to take a good thing and define our life with it and serve it and worship it and we may not call it god but we can't live without it either Idolatry is foolish. It's deeply foolish. And the plagues are meant to show us the foolishness of idolatry. That these things that people devote their lives to cannot save and really save. Number four, God protects those whom he loves. Once again, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt and no Israelite livestock die. No Israelites get the boils. No Israelites are struck down by hail and lightning. That does not mean, by the way, that God's people are always immune from suffering. It doesn't mean that. Becoming a Christian does not mean God puts the king's X over your life and nothing bad will ever happen to you. If someone told you that, they lied to you. Nothing in Scripture says that. We worship and serve a crucified Messiah. Amen? But, nevertheless, God protects his people. I can look back over my life, and, and I remember the folks I ran around in high school with, and, and they went this way. I went toward the Lord. Not perfectly, not completely, obediently. I'm, still, I'm not completely obedient today. Amen? Uh, but, but I watched. And do you know what I discovered? God protects those whom he loves. There is so much wreckage that is not part of my life, that is part of any number of people I could name their life? You know why? Because God protects those whom he loves. And by the way, ultimately, you know, we, when pastors get together, they joke. You know, and they, they tell stories sometimes. One guy said to me, he goes, you know, he goes, I'm in a, in a small church, and he is, he's in a very small church, about 30 people. 
And he said, you know, the pay is not great, but the retirement plan is unbelievable. <laughs> okay. And I said, you know, Dan, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Down here, we might not have every blessing and benefit that we would ever want. We might not have the biggest house, might not have the nicest car, might not send our kids to the most elite schools and the most elaborate colleges. But the retirement plan is unbelievable because God protects those whom he loves. Amen? Number five, God is merciful, but he is not mockable. Write it down. God is merciful, but he is not mockable. He warns people so that they can flee from judgment and receive grace. But he also, of a certainty, delivers on the consequences he promises to his failure. God is not mocked. Man reaps what he sows. So says the scripture. God is merciful, but he is not mockable. And if you continue in rebellion against God, you will reap the consequences he promises to his failure. Just as Pharaoh did, just as Egypt did, you will. God is the same yesterday, today, and on into forever. He is incredibly merciful. And he warns us over and over and over and over and over again to flee from the wrath of God. 160 times in the New Testament alone, uh, 70 of them on the lips of Jesus, we are warned to flee from the wrath of God. not listening God is merciful but he is not mockable number six God is sovereign you want to cross reference this passage with Romans chapter 9 where Pharaoh is specifically mentioned as being raised up for the purposes of God that God's name might be made great that he might be known among people well beyond the borders of and well beyond the time in which he lived, that God might be known by all people. God is sovereign. He saves whom he loves and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Do I totally understand that? No. Do I bow my knee and thank God that he saved me and loves me and chose me? Yes, I do. See, on their knees, every person is a Calvinist. They believe God chose them, and so they thank God for their salvation. Because they realize that if it was up to them, they didn't have anything to do with it. Right? If it was up to me for me to have salvation, I, I would probably already be in hell. Because in me, there doesn't dwell anything that is righteous only what comes from the Spirit of God. And the salvation that I have comes not from me and my wonderful specialness, I'll assure you. Ask my wife. Okay, you don't believe me. Ask my kids. Uh, they'll tell you that in that house dwells an ordinary dude who is saved by grace and loved by God. Number seven, fear the Lord and obey. 
God is merciful to those who obey, but he dispenses justice to those who reject. It's why he tells the Egyptians in advance, this is what's going to happen tomorrow. You want to get your stuff in from the field. <laughs> okay, why does he tell them that? Because he is gracious, and, he is, and, and so we ought to fear his word and obey it, while the obeying is good. It says, those who feared the Lord did what he said, and those who rejected his word suffered consequences, experienced God's justice as a result. In the same way, people are given gracious warning after gracious God's way. If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a lot to be thankful for. You have a home in heaven. You are, have a salvation that is kept secure by the power of God. You are held underneath uh, by the everlasting arm of an eternal omnipotent being. If, however, you do not know for certain where you would go if you died today. Know this for certain. That this is a warning. To fear the word of the Lord and obey him. Because his wrath is no joke and it is eternal. And you do not escape. Except through Jesus Christ who died on the cross Raised from the dead to give you new life. He made a way of escape, just like he provided the Egyptians. Get your stuff in the barn. He's telling you, come home to the Lord. Come home to me. Get yourself into heaven through believing in the way that I provided. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who died on the cross. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, you are a great and good and merciful and gracious and unbelievably powerful. You are the being who flung the universe into existence at a mere word. Let there be. And yet, Father, you are the God who looks down at us, creatures from, from whom are made the same stuff as we are. Father, you made us out of the stuff of the earth, and you breathe into us the breath of life, and you made us in your image that we might serve you and worship you with our lives. And Father, that is our prayer this morning, that today we might heed the word. Serve you and worship you well with our lives. Pray.